0: My name is Kwali Kush, and the topic of this episode is Christianity. What is Christianity? How did it become the religion that we know today? And why did the slave masters feel it was beneficial to give Christianity to their slaves? Today, we're going to find out. Kush from KaliKush.com, and today on New Thugs, we're talking about Christianity. The first thing you need to understand when researching Christianity is that the Bible itself is not one book, but 66 books that are compiled together. And each of these books was written at different times, most of them by different people. Some of them were written hundreds of years apart. This is why historical research is critical when you're reading the Bible if you want to analyze what it means, what it was intended for and its overall message. This presentation will be analyzing Christianity from its conception to present day. How did it get here? Was it God-given or man-made? If Christianity was God-given, we would expect it to come from revelation. But if it's man-made, then we should be able to find historical tales in the scriptures that give away the earlier belief systems that it came from. All the data that I've researched and all my sources are listed below. So if you want to fact check this information, which I encourage you to do, please check in the video description for the sources below. So how did Christianity become the religion that we know today? Well, the first thing that we have to understand is that the Old Testament is the Jewish Bible. Later on, Christian writers added on the New Testament and compiled them with the Old Testament and made the Bible. But the Old Testament alone is the Jewish Bible. This is a prerequisite that you have to understand if you're going to understand how Christianity evolved. So take a look at these stages. Each one of these stages was influenced by readily identifiable historical forces. And we'll be pointing out each one of these forces and how they influence the religion as we go along. And don't worry, I will define all of these terms for you. So if you don't know what one of these words means or understand what it says, don't worry about it. I got you. We're going to explain it as we go along. First, we see it started as Canaanite polytheism. and Then it evolved into Jewish monotheism. And then later on, until apocalyptic Judaism, and then that became what we know as early Christianity. So, Canaanite polytheism, after the Assyrian and Babylonian conquest, becomes Jewish monotheism. And then, after the Persian Zoroastrian influence, it becomes apocalyptic Judaism. And then, after the Greco Roman and Egyptian influence, it becomes what we know as early Christianity. So, Let's dissect these influences and break each one of them down step by step. So how did the Christian belief system change from polytheism to monotheism? Well, polytheism is the belief in multiple gods and monotheism is the belief in one single god. Canaanite polytheism. What is Canaanite polytheism? Well, Canaan was the name of a large and prosperous ancient country, at times independent and at others a tributary to Egypt. Located in the Levant region of present-day Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Israel. It was also known as Phoenicia. The ancestors of those who called themselves Jewish were not much different from Canaanite neighbors. Most notably, they believed in many gods. And the proof of this is in the Bible. Ezekiel 8.14 Then he brought me to the entrance, and I saw the woman sitting there, mourning the god Tammuz. Judges 10.6 the Israelites served the Baals and the Asterisks, and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. 1 Kings 19.18 Yet I reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal. So you have to read that scripture carefully. What that scripture in 1 Kings is saying is that only 7,000 Israelites don't worship Baal. Okay. And if you don't know what Baal is, Baal is an ancient god worshipped in many ancient Middle Eastern communities, especially among the Canaanites, who apparently considered him a fertility deity and one of the most important gods in the pantheon. He was also called the Lord of Rain and Dew, the two forms of moisture that were indispensable for fertile soil in Canaan. But the thing we have to take away from this slide is that only 7,000 Israelites did not worship by all according to the Bible. But wait, there is more polytheism in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 8:5. For even there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Exodus 2:3. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Joshua 24:2. And Joshua said unto all the people: Thus said the Lord God of Israel your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in the old time even to Rah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nakar, and they served other gods." Judges 2.13. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. So as you can see there is a plethora of polytheism in the Bible. But this is Old Testament. So understand that the Old Testament was written years before the New Testament. The first book of the New Testament wasn't written until about 70 AD at the earliest. It might have been even later than that. The last book of the Old Testament was written like 300 BC. So these are two separate religious ideologies being merged together. And the earliest ideology was completely different than what we know as Christianity today. So how did it evolve? How did it change? Let's figure it out. So when reading the Bible, if you have read it, I'm sure you've noticed there are plural references to God in the Bible, but why are they plural? For example, in Genesis 1.26, we read, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Genesis 3.22 adds, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Why does God refer to himself as us? There's also a grammatical reason that could most naturally explain God's reference to himself as us in Hebrew. There is a feature called the plural of majesty. The plural of majesty was used when a ruler or a king spoke of himself in the plural form in reference to his greatness. Instead of speaking of my rule, a king might speak of our rule over the land, even if he was speaking only of himself. This was common in ancient times. Many Hebrew scholars believe that this is the most appropriate understanding of these verses. God, in his greatness, refers to himself as us, as other rulers did during that time. If this be the case, it proves that the book of Genesis is written solely by humans with no revelation from a God, as God has no reason to have the same grammatical habits of humans during the time. Christians sometimes claim that this is the Trinity talking to himself. That's funny. If either common Christian explanation were the case, you would expect the pattern to continue throughout the Old Testament, but it doesn't. It only happens in some of the most earliest writings of the Old Testament. Do they refer to God in the plural form? We know from the Eucharistic text that it was common amongst religions from time to time to have a chief God that was supposedly in charge of a council of lesser gods. A much more plausible explanation is that the plural references in Genesis are remnants of those older polytheistic beliefs, seeing as how they were written around the same time as those beliefs were prevalent among the community. Let's keep it going. Even more plural references to God in the Bible, Psalms 89 verse 5 through 10 The heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness, too, in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God, El, is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Now that is, is a nail in the coffin right there. And it becomes even more apparent in other scriptures as well. But let's stick with this one for now. Who are these holy ones in the skies that the Bible refers to? Are they talking about angels? Well, in the Hebrew translation, we don't see the Hebrew word for angels, which is Malach. Also, an all-powerful God doesn't need helpers if he's all-powerful. Again, it is much more plausible that these passages are remnants of earlier traditions which consisted of divine counsel like the Canaanite gods which had divine counsels in them. There are other verses which contradict these verses in favor of monotheism but there are in the very few. These remnants prove that there was a polytheistic belief among the early culture that later editors to the text have skewed towards monotheism but did not erase the traces completely. As you can see I've highlighted the word El on this slide. The reason for this is because there is a translation in Hebrew for El. So El was known as the supreme God of the Canaanites in the mythology of the ancient Near East. And he was the father of gods, including by all and men, and the creator did. He is sometimes depicted as a bull and known for his tremendous power and strength. Genesis 17:1. When Abram was ninety-nine years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. The Hebrew translation for that is El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give you everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. I will be their God. Let's go to Genesis 28.3. says, May God Almighty, in Hebrew translation is El Shaddai, bless you. Genesis 48.3. God Almighty, El Shaddai, appeared to me. So notice, In the English version, it has been changed to God Almighty. But in the original text, it was written as El Shaddai. What is El Shaddai? Well, El, we already know El is the name of the the Canaanite God. And it's actually the God's name. It doesn't mean just a title God. It was a God named El. And Shaddai is Hebrew for Almighty. So it means El Almighty. The God El, Almighty, not just a God. Somehow along the way, um, Christian writers have perverted the word El to mean a title of a God, but it was originally the name, and you can look this up. It was the name of the Canaanite God, El. So let's break down this word a little further, El. The alleged monotheistic God of Christianity is consistently being referred to as Elohim, a plural form of El. So when did Yahweh appear in the Bible? Let's see. Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. And I appeared unto Abraham, now this is God talking, unto Isaac and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. But by my name Yahweh was I not known to them. The traditional view is that the book of Exodus was written by Moses based on the traditional date for the death of Moses. That would mean that it was written around 1400 B.C. However, the view of the biblical scholars now is that Moses did not write and could not have written Exodus. So why would a monotheistic God go by more than one name, especially if he was attempting to teach his people about monotheism? The book of Exodus was already proven fiction by a man named Terence Freedom. Look him up. The story of Exodus is the founding myth of the Israelites, telling of their deliverance from slavery by Yahweh, which made them chosen people according to the Mosaic Covenant. Now this, to me, appears to be a sloppy attempt to merge two traditions of El and Yahweh. Over time, the traditions of God El and God Yahweh were fused together and the other gods in the pantheon were eventually discarded and no longer worshiped. So let's look into the incremental merging of El and Yahweh. Writings such as, but not limited to, the Ugaritic texts show that attributes of El were fused with attributes of Yahweh and over many generations they became the same God. As the centuries passed, written references to El were modified to make El a more generic term for a God rather than the actual name of a specific Canaanite God. Likewise, over time, we see the writings of Baal transition from Baal being the son of El to Baal being the generic term for any foreign God. Now. The early Old Testament God was not this all-powerful God that we hear about today. And this we can prove with the scriptures. But today, Christians claim that God is all-powerful. So at what point during Christian evolution did God go from not all-powerful to all-powerful? Let's look into the emergence of omnipotence. Judges chapter 1, verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley, because they had chariots of iron. So basically, um, God couldn't beat these inhabitants of the valley because they had some iron chariots? That doesn't sound like an all-powerful God to me. Yet, it's in the Bible. Second Kings chapter 3, verse 26. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too sore for him, he took with him seven hundred men that drew swords to break through even unto the kings of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his eldest son that should have reigned in his steed and offered him a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was a great indignation against Israel, and they departed from him and returned to their own land." So in the 2nd Kings, we see the king of Moab at war with the Israelites prophet Elijah predicted that the Israelites would defeat the Moabites if you remember correctly reading the Bible but the king of Moab sacrifices his son to the God of the Moabites Chemosh alright look up the God of the Moabites Chemosh and the Israelites were defeated so apparently the sacrifice to Chemosh was effective and the Israelite God couldn't beat the Moabites because they made a sacrifice to Chemosh so This proves that the Old Testament God could not have been omnipotent. So what was the turning point? When did the Jews go from polytheism to monotheism exactly? So all of the evidence that we've looked at so far suggests that the early Israelites were indigenous Canaanite people. If this is true, it would explain why there is zero evidence for the story of Exodus. It appears to me that the story of Exodus was written to later legitimize claims made by the Jews. But that's a separate topic for a separate video, so stay tuned for my presentation on the Exodus. So what were the historical forces that led to the turning point from Canaanite polytheism to Jewish monotheism? What was going on in the world at the time? Well, right after the golden age of King Solomon, kingdom of Israel was split into north and south, with the south becoming the kingdom of Judah. And in 722 BCE, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, sometimes referred to as the Lost Tribe because they disappeared from history after that. And in 587 BCE, the Babylonians conquered Judah and enslaved the elite of Judean society. So, the Jews got their ass whooped. The northern kingdom disappeared and the southern kingdom was enslaved. And during this point, some of the Jews that were in exile actually developed a radical explanation for their capture. How and why would God allow it? So some of them thought that it was punishment by Yahweh. Some of them thought that the Assyrians and the Babylonians were Yahweh's tools. So not only was Yahweh in control of the Israelites, but he was in control of the Assyrians and the Babylonians too. This was a new concept at the time that, a god could be in control of other people that didn't adhere to that god. Therefore, if Yahweh was in control of the Assyrians, then he must be their god too. And thus we see the emergence of a monotheistic belief of one god rather than many gods. Now I want you to look very closely at these maps. Notice that Egypt is in Africa. Because lots of people today will try to tell you that Egypt is not in Africa but anytime we speak about Egypt, whether in the Bible or out of the Bible, we're talking about Africans, okay? So, all of this stuff is heavily centered around the continent of Africa. Not only the Middle East, which is basically Africa. They just, they don't want to call it, there's no continent called the Middle East, all right? There's Europe, there's Asia, there's Africa, And for some reason, they don't wanna call the Middle East Africa. So they just call it the Middle East. But this is Africa, people, look at Egypt. It's the only continent of Africa, it's right on top of Sudan, all right? Sudan is in Africa and so is Egypt. And also take note of the ancient names for these cities and the modern day names for these cities. You got Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Sudan, Iran, those are modern day names. And then we have the ancient names, Persia, Palestine, and Edom, and such. But notice that this is the same northern African region. First appearances of monotheism. Now in the year 540 BCE, at the end of captivity, we finally see writings expressing emphatic singularity of a deity. In Isaiah 45, verse 5. I am the Lord, there is no one else, there is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know me from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is no one beside me. I am the Lord, there is no one else. I form the light, I create darkness, I make peace and create evil. The Lord, I do all things. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no one else. Now, notice that there is no mention of a devil or an adversary because at this time of these writings, those beliefs had not developed yet. Alright? This is why you have to do a comparative reading of the Bible to know when these books were written so you can understand what you read. Also, in the early Judaism, you don't see a heaven or a hell. These concepts developed later on, and this proves that the religion is a progression that is evolving and is not one package sent down by God. But I digress. So the next historical influence is the persian Zoroastrian influence, which converted the Jewish monotheism into apocalyptic Judaism. So what were the beliefs about the afterlife in the early Jewish community? At this point of the evolution of Christianity, there is no hell. There was a belief in the shell a world underneath the earth where disembodied dead souls went. It was believed that all people went to shell after death. In Job chapter 7 verse 9, we see as the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to shell does not come up. Heaven was not then believed to be a destination in the afterlife, but was merely a place where God lived. And we see this in 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 30. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. So they had a concept of heaven, but it wasn't a place that you go. It was just just where God lived. And they didn't have a a hell. They had a a place where everybody went in the afterlife. And there was neither pain nor, nor suffering. It was just where dead souls went. So if there's no heaven or hell how did the early jewish god handle the rewards and punishment of their people well let's find out deuteronomy 28:11. we see and the lord shall make thee plenteous in gods in the fruit of thy body and in the fruit of thy cattle and in the fruit of thy ground in the land which the lord sware unto thy fathers to give thee in deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 22 it says but it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the lord your god The Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning, and with a sword, with scorching, with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. Exodus 34 verse 7 Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children, upon the third and the fourth generation and there's also more in Exodus 20, Numbers and Deuteronomy. So basically what we see in Exodus 34 is that this God, he couldn't get to people after they had perished. So he threatened to get to their children and and their grandchildren, and and if I can add, uh, the great-grandchildren. So why punish generation after generation if you have a system to punish people in the afterlife well there was no system to punish people in the afterlife this is why these verses exist now the early monotheists believed that god rewarded and punished people in life not after death this was known as the doctrine of intergenerational sin so as i stated earlier the earliest monotheists did not yet have a belief in a devil even in Genesis, the serpent is not mentioned to be the devil. The text simply says, talking serpent. It wasn't until later authors added to the text that the serpent was considered to be the devil. You can read Genesis 3.14, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cast above all cattle, above every beast of the field, upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust thou shalt eat all of the days of thy life. Now, how do we know that the serpent wasn't the devil? Well, because the book says plainly that God punished the serpent. So if God is all-knowing and he knows that the serpent is being possessed by the devil, then God should have given the punishment to the devil. Not the serpent, because the serpent would have been innocent in this scenario. So why would an all-knowing God punish a serpent for doing something that was against his own will the serpent in the story was being possessed by the devil, so the Christians claim, post-hoc. But if you read the story carefully, it doesn't say anything about the devil. It just says a talking serpent. So an all-knowing God wouldn't punish all serpents for one serpent getting possessed by the devil. An all-knowing God will punish the real wrongdoer, which would be the devil. So clearly there's an inconsistency and the claims about the attributes of God and the stories that are written about God, which suggests to me that these are all myths. Oh, and not to mention the talking snake. So when did Satan first appear? Let's look at Job chapter one, verse six. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Now I'm sure y'all know the story of Job. First Chronicles 21 and satan stood up against israel and provoked david to number israel Job chapter one verse six on the day the angels come to present themselves before and satan also came with them zechariah chapter three he showed me to joshua and satan standing at his right side to accuse him now i've highlighted the hebrew translation for satan which is hasatan Ha meaning the, and Satan meaning adversary or one who obstructs. It doesn't refer to a specific individual, it just means the adversary. So, note that in these scriptures, Satan is not in opposition to God. Satan is following and obeying God's commands. Notice that the two scriptures on the right Sait Hasatan, which means the adversary, thus we see the beginning of the personification of an adversary figure. However, it was not a name, rather a title. Now the Persian Zoroastrian influence, but first, what is Zoroastrianism? Zoroastrianism is one of the oldest continuously practiced religions. It's a multi tendency faith centered on a dualistic cosmology between good and evil and the eschatology predicting the ultimate conquest of evil with theological elements like monotheism and polytheism now what was going on in the world during this historical influence around the year 539 BC the Persian Empire ruled by Cyrus the Great conquers Babylon and remember Babylon had already conquered the kingdom of Judah so now they're being conquered the Babylonians are being conquered by Cyrus the Great and Cyrus the Great had a habit of freeing the slaves of the places that he would uh, conquer So he let the Jews go and even gave them financial assistance, helped them out, say, hey, y'all go over here, y'all do y'all thing. So for the next 200 years, Judah was a colony of Persia. 200 years. During this time, it's not unwise to assume that some Persian ideologies might rub off on the Jewish people. So coincidentally, we see the emergence during this time period of Persian rule That the Jewish adopted the beliefs in a judgment or afterlife, and um, they adopted the supernatural opponent to God, i.e. the devil, and that gave rise to what we now call apocalyptic Judaism, which would somehow reveal God's greatness and righteousness, some big event an apocalypse that will reveal God's true power. Zoroastrians believe the good and bad were in a cosmic battle at all times. Sound familiar? The Zoroastrian god of good, Ahur Mazda, fought against the god of evil, Araman. They believed that good will eventually win and at the time there will be a mass resurrection and judgment of all people. The good will go to paradise while the bad went to a nasty pit. So, not only did they adopt the supernatural opponent, the judgmental afterlife, and apocalyptics, but they also gave rise to the idea of a resurrection. So, apocalyptic Judaism. We now see the emergence of apocalyptic writings in scriptures only centuries after the Persians conquered Babylon, which held the Jews. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 29. Time is short. This world is in its present form, is passing away. Mark 15. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus. Yeah, Jesus said that. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The axe is already at the roots of the trees. And I want you to go and look at when these books of the Bible were written so that you can understand how they became influenced by what was happening in the world around them. But let's keep on going, because now we get into the nitty gritty, the juicy, the Greco-Roman and Egyptian influences. When apocalyptic Judaism transitioned into early Christianity as we know it today. So now in this time we see three major influences being adopted by the Christians from Greco-Roman and Egyptian influences. One being the Trinity, Two, being the resurrection of the deity. And three, being rituals. And this quote comes from circa 440 B.C., long before any New Testament was ever thought of. It says, on this lake they hold at night an exhibition of Osiris' sufferings a performance the Egyptians called the mysteries. Now we're getting on to a more controversial topic. We don't have time to go that much in-depth into this, but I did want to touch on it. So maybe we'll explore it later in the future. Y'all let me know if there's something that you want to see. But I think it's better if you look up this stuff yourself because you have a lot of people saying a lot of different things about this subject. Did the early Christians plagiarize the life of Jesus from earlier pre-existing deities mainly Horus and Mithras? So I argue the answer is yes because the similarities are just too too similar to me. Um, but Christians will argue that the there are differences in these stories that make it to where you you can you say one of them didn't plagiarize from the other. But these differences are so minor. I mean it's it's simple stuff like the the virgin birth versus the miraculous birth. They say oh he didn't copy that because Jesus was born of a virgin and Horace was born from a miracle. What well, that's minor to me. You know and, and in the Bible it's a staff and in the Book of the Dead is a so That's plagiarism to me. But they say since it's not identical, they didn't copy it. But I'm going to leave that up to you, the viewer, to decide. So make sure you look into the Horus and Jesus relationship and similarities between the two. So what else did the Christians get from the Egyptians? The Holy Trinity wasn't introduced until about 3 CE by an African Christian in Carthage by the name of Tertullian. Carthage was a colony of Rome during this time. If you remember from before, Rome is also becoming heavily Christianized. So they're expanding their empire and they're spreading their religion. And where are they spreading it to? Northern Africa, Carthage, which is right next door to Egypt. So this guy, Tertullian, who is sandwiched right in between Egypt and Rome. Rome, heavily Christian. Egypt has a concept of a trinity. And this guy invents the Trinity. People say they didn't get that from the Egyptians. I say open and shut case, Johnson. Now, the ancient Egyptians did have a Holy Trinity concept, but it was the Father, the Mother, and the Child. And when Sertullian got a hold of this concept, he perverted it and changed it into Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So why would they remove the Mother and replace her with a Ghost? I'll tell you why. Because they were chauvinists. Alright? And they couldn't conceive of what they considered to be a lowly woman as being equal to Yahweh. So they just removed her and replaced her with God. Because they're making this thing up as they go along. Okay? Now, instead of father, mother, and child, they got two men and a fucking ghost. What do we know about ancient Rome? Ancient Rome was a patriarchal society where men held authority in private as well as public life. They had positions of power in politics, administration, and military. The men in ancient Rome were also the head of the family and enjoyed virtually unlimited powers over their wives. So basically the Romans were chauvinists. They were chauvinists. They didn't like women like that. All right? So they took the mother and replaced her with a fucking ghost. So now instead of having father, mother, and child you got father, son and a fucking ghost. So what else was going on during the first century? We see more acculturation of the continent of Africa. Serapis and Isis are gaining in popularity and within Egypt the Roman invaders began to represent themselves as pharaohs. So you have foreigners on the throne pretending to be Egyptians now the first Egyptians didn't recognize them as, as pharaohs and they didn't like this so they would go around destroying monuments and statues that's why you see a lot of Egyptian statues with their noses removed because the nose was the dead giveaway that this is not you this is an African and you're a Roman so they wanted to be Pharaohs, So they basically acculturated the Egyptian culture. They stole their culture is what I'm saying. And also while they invaded Egypt, they didn't change much about the culture other than the things that they wanted to change. So it seemed like they had a certain amount of admiration for the Egyptian culture because they kept a lot of things the same, which wasn't common when you invade a land, you usually change everything. But they kept a lot of stuff and they just changed like dresses and hairstyles and stuff And over time, Greek and Egyptian cultures merged together. And also within the first century, we see the rise of Christianity within Egypt and a large Jewish community in the city of Alexandria. So at this point, we have the Holy Trinity, have popular Egyptian gods that are even popular in the Roman kingdom, and then we have Romans that admire the people that they invaded. Add these three components together and we have a motive to alter the scriptural interpretations so that the Egyptians will be more accepting of their Roman pharaohs that had conquered them. And then you begin to see writings such as that of Romans. Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, Paul, or whoever the writer of Romans was, now uses Zoroastrian concepts of taking part in the triumph of God through a ritual. This was not part of the Jewish religion prior. Paul began reinterpreting the Jewish scriptures. So, Paul's interpretation was that Jesus had to be sacrificed because he had to atone for mankind. Well why did he have to atone for mankind? Because humans were incapable of following the law that Moses had read to them. Well why were humans incapable of following the law? Because Adam and Eve committed the original sin. Now understand that this concept that sounds very familiar to you I'm sure is a post interpretation. It wasn't the original meaning of the scripture. This is Paul's post-interpretation of the scriptures after the Greco-Egyptian influences. So Paul basically rewrote the Bible. He basically told all the Jews that had been reading these books for 1400 years that they didn't know what the fuck they was reading. They were wrong and this is what it really means. He just changed the meaning of it. So let's analyze Paul's interpretations and see if they hold up. Paul said that Adam and Eve's original sin cursed mankind. Well, if Yahweh knew about original sin polluting mankind, then he would have known not to spare Noah. So Noah and his family must have had original sin since the claim is original sin exists today. They, they must have had it. So if God is all powerful, he could have just flooded everybody, killed everybody and created mankind again without original sin. But he didn't do this. So obviously God must not have known about this original sin. God is all-knowing, so how could they have had a rhythm of sin and God not know about it? His next interpretation says that humans are incapable of obeying the law given to Moses. Now this is refuted by Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 11. As Moses spoke on behalf of God saying, Now what am I commanding of you? Today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. The word is very near for you. It is in your mouth and heart so you may obey it. Paul rewrites this in Romans chapter 10 saying the word is near you. It is in your mouth and heart that is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. Now notice how Paul omits the part about being capable of following the law. He also said that Jesus was sacrificed to pay atonement for mankind. But this is refuted by 2 Chronicles chapter 7 verse 14. If my people pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will forgive their sin. Also, in Psalm chapter 51, verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice or I will bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Long before Jesus, the Israelites had multiple routes for atonement from God. Mainly being prayer and repentance, but not solely sacrifice. But the new version of Christianity needed sacrifice to be the only way for atonement. Why? Because they needed people to believe in Jesus. If you didn't need Jesus, you didn't need the religion. They needed you to need the religion. Now remember, Paul was preaching to Gentiles. Gentiles who were not Jews thus weren't vast enough to know that Paul was contradicting the early Jewish scriptures. Paul rewrote scriptures in a way that mirrored the religions that he was trying to proselytize to. Now this, I argue, is why most Jews today will get very upset if you call them Christians. And most Christians today don't consider themselves Jewish because the Old Testament and the New Testament are actually two very different ideologies. And if you want proof of this claim, You can read the book, The Golden Stool. I posted a free copy on my website, kwalikush.com. This book says, quote, the other method tries to graft our higher civilization on the soundly rooted native stock, bringing out the best of what is in the native tradition and molding it into a form consonant with our modern ideas and higher standards. I also posted a link in the description, so you don't have to look far, just look in the video description. And I'll take you right to this page where you can read this book for yourself. Now, in 70 CE, we see the destruction of Jerusalem. So, why is this significant? After Jerusalem was destroyed, the Romans were free to thwart the scriptures to their pleasing. It's clear that in the book of Acts, Paul and James were in vehement disagreement about Jesus. James said, you must be a Jew in order to be a Christian. Paul says, no, you must only be baptized in order to be a Christian. So if Jesus actually lived, he would have died around 30 CE, 40 years before the fall of Jerusalem. The first gospel wasn't written about Jesus until 15 years after the fall of Jerusalem. Christianity was now something completely separate from Judaism and poised perfectly for spreading to a non-Jewish community with its openness to all and promises of afterlife. The Romans then began spreading Christianity throughout their entire empire. And then we have the appearance of Jesus. Now the first gospel about Jesus was written around the year 70 CE. And they attributed it to Mark, but Mark was not the person who wrote this. They don't know who actually wrote it. They just attributed it to Mark. So as you see in these scriptures, there is... No mention of a nativity scene, no wise men, no virgin birth, nothing. Jesus doesn't become divine in Mark until he gets baptized. Alright? So Mark was the first of the four gospels to be written. Jesus appears in Mark as an adult. There's no record of his childhood or birth. Mark chapter 3 verse 21 suggests that people thought Jesus was a crazy person when he preached. If the nativity story actually happened, why would people think Jesus was crazy? They would have expected him to be a little different if he had a real miraculous birth. Now, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. Well, why would he need to be baptized if he was already divine? As Jesus is baptized, he, quote, saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending upon him. Now, this quote implies that if the Spirit descended upon him, that it wasn't already there. So, Jesus doesn't become divine until his baptism. This is known as adoptionism. Now, we have Matthew and Luke that was written somewhere around the year 90. The first writings to claim the virgin birth of Jesus and Jesus is seen as divine from birth. There is no mention of a prior existence of Jesus. So they contradict Mark. But remember, at the time of these writings, Egypt was still being ruled by Rome. Just keep that in mind. And then we have the book of John that was written much, much later, somewhere around 150 CE at the earliest. Could have been much later than that. But I'm being generous over here. The book of John says, the last gospels to be written and the author would have been born about a century after Jesus' death. Yet, this book has the most new information about Jesus. It's the farthest from the life of Jesus but has the most information about Jesus. Jesus in John is seen as divine throughout. Jesus is not baptized nor tested by temptation in the desert in the book of John. I argue that's because John was uh, making shit up. Now you should be able to see how the modern Christian religion was created from a combination of earlier pre-existing religions coupled with Judaism. We have the Assyrian conquest that provided monotheism, the persian Zoroastrian conquest that provided the devil and the afterlife, and we have the Greco-Roman-Egyptian influence that provided the Trinity and the union with God. Now take a look at this map of the early Roman Empire in the first century when Christianity was beginning to spread and the Roman Empire was at its peak. Where are they colonizing? In all the places that are today heavily Christian. So again if Christianity was God-given we would expect it to be given by God. But if it was man-made we would expect it to be given to us by man. From the looks of this looks like Christianity was not only given to us by man, it was perverted by man, changed by man, reinterpreted, rewritten, and given to African slaves as a means of control. So I hope you learned something today. If not, I hope you can teach me something. If you disagree with any of the information I provided, please leave a detailed comment and I'll be sure to get right back with you as soon as possible because I want to get down to the truth of the matter. If you want to check any of my sources, here they go. You can check both my book sources and two internet sources that I use for this presentation and let me know anything that you think is fraudulent or incorrect so that I can go back and correct it. Make sure you hit that subscribe button, hit that like button, and go to that website, qualitycush.com, and subscribe to that blog too. This has been an episode of New Thugs. My name is Quali Kush, and I'll see you next time.